0: Acts chapter 6 this morning. We're going to cover the first seven verses together. Acts chapter 6. I want to draw your attention to a few things about the text before we get started. Uh, You will see uh, in verse 1 that the disciples are increasing in number. And in verse 7, you will see that once more, again, they are greatly increasing in number as the word of God spreads. And in the middle there, you'll find, we'll find, that these uh, apostles are devoting themselves to the word of God, It's the word that is at the center of our text and it is the message of Christ crucified for the sins of all who will put their faith in him and raised from the dead for their justification that is the centerpiece of Acts. Acts revolves around this mini great commission in verse 8 of chapter 1. It says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so throughout Acts, what we have is, is a pattern. What we'll see that the apostles, at the church, is to bear witness to Christ, and over and over again, threats rise up against them. These things that threaten to snuff out their witness. It's as if their uh, witness were a candle, and these threats come along, and they like, you know, like if you've ever put your hand around a candle, like, or like licked your you know, thumb and your finger there and like put it out real quick. These threats are like right ready to do that, ready to put out their witness. But each and every time we see the word of God prevailing. And it happens right away. Like uh, we've said Acts can be summarized as Jesus goes up, the spirit comes down and the church goes out. Uh, The resurrected Jesus teaches in chapter 1. He makes that promise that we alluded to in verse 8. And then at the end of chapter 1, he does what he said he was going to do. He goes up into heaven and sits on his throne. And then what he says was going to happen, happens. The Spirit comes down, and the apostles begin to minister. And there's the first threat. Someone says, these guys, they're out of their minds. They're just drunk. Nobody's going to listen to these drunken fools. But Peter preaches, he declares that Jesus is both Lord and Messiah, and we read at the end of chapter 2, in verse 41, So those who accepted his message were baptized and that day about 3,000 people were added to them then Peter and John, they heal a lame man who had never walked before for 40 years. He woke up from bed, rubbed sleep out of his eyes, and he didn't walk. And then that day he saw Peter and Peter said, in the name of Jesus Christ, get up and walk. And he goes leaping and bounding through the temple like a young deer. And the, uh, you know, the, the powers that be just can't have this uh, because everybody's going to Peter and John and like, hey, you, you healed this guy. How did you do that? And they are sharing the message of Jesus. They get Jealous, They get annoyed in the first part of chapter 4, and so they arrest them. But even though they are arrested, we find in verse 4 of chapter 4, many of those who heard the message believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. Then we see that they are threatened, they're told to shut up about Jesus. They refuse, and they're kind of frightened to continue preaching this message. And so they get together and they pray and God's spirit falls on them it fills them in a fresh way. They have a fresh experience of God and the place they are in is strengthened. I'm sorry, the, the place they are in is shaken and they are strengthened. And we read in verse 31 of chapter 4, The place they were assembled was shaken and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God boldly. The word continues to grow. Now we have that scene with Ananias and Sapphira where God judges their sin. They try to stand before him falsely and lie, but God knows their hearts and so they are judged immediately. He exacts payment for their sin on the spot and they drop dead. And this causes a great fear to fall on everyone in the church and everyone who hears these things. And in verse 13 of chapter 5, we see no one else dared to join them. But then we read in verse 14 that those who God was calling to himself couldn't be kept away. Believers were added to the Lord in increasing numbers, multitudes of both men and women. Then as we saw last week, Peter and John are arrested, an angel busts them out of prison and says, hey, you know what got you arrested and put in here, right, was talking about Jesus? Keep doing that. Go back to the temple and keep telling people about the life that is available when they take up their cross, turn from their sins, and follow Jesus. And the Sanhedrin's convened to have a trial, and they're like, go bring in the prisoners, and they're like, we can't find them, nobody knows where they are, and they're like, oh, they're back in the temple, bring them here. And so uh, they go before the Sanhedrin and they continue to preach the gospel to the extent that the Sanhedrin is really, really mad. They want to kill the apostles. But God raises up Gamaliel, who's a member of the Sanhedrin, for such a time as this to say, don't kill them, just you know, flog them a little and watch how this whole thing plays out. And so they are beaten And then we read at the end of chapter 5, they went from the presence of the Sanhedrin rejoicing and that they were counted worthy to be treated shamefully on behalf of the name, that's the name of Jesus. Verse 42, every day in the temple and in various homes they continued teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is Messiah. And then verse 1 of our text today, in those days the disciples were increasing in number. And so here's this pattern, the the message is threatened, something is threatening to snuff it out, to stop the word of Christ from moving forward, and each and every time the threat is overcome, the word continues to advance, Jesus continues to build his church that brings us to our main idea. That the main idea of this text is that in the face of adversity, God's word prevails. And there's a lot of other things going on in the text and we're going we're to get to those. A lot about service and church structure and how that helps us to support healthy growth. Kind of like a, a trellis supports a vine. Right? You have to have uh, administrative things in place to help support the growth of a church in a way that's healthy. I'm getting ahead of myself. But the main idea, the main thing you need to see is that God's word prevails. It doesn't fail or falter. I want to exhort you this morning to love God's word and to serve the body, to serve the church. Work through it in three ways. We'll consider the church's problem, the church's priorities, and the church's plan. Let's pray and get into the text. Father, we thank you for this time we have together. We thank you for your word. Thank you that Jesus' blood cleanses us from all sin and unrighteousness. That He's faithful to forgive our sins when we confess them and confess Him as Lord. Help us to be a people who understand the priority of the Gospel and the power of the Gospel to change us into people who represent Jesus well. Let our assembly, this church, be a place where people encounter Jesus. Let us be a display of your glory, an embassy of your kingdom, so that when folks join us and that when we join one another, we have just a sweet taste of the new heavens and the new earth right now. God, give us ears to hear. Give me clarity of thought. Help me to be um, clear rather than clever so that your voice might be heard. Let us all submit ourselves to your word. It is good. It stands sure forever. It's in Jesus' name that we pray these things. Amen. So look with me at verse 1 of chapter 6. In those days, as the disciples were increasing in number, there arose a complaint by the Hellenistic Jews against the Hebraic Jews that their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution. And so the problem here is really boring, kind of. Right, the threat to the church at this juncture is not all that exciting. It's, it's kind of a whimper of a problem. But as you might know, small sparks start big fires. And this is a volatile situation. What we have are a bunch of widows, and they're separated into two groups. There's the Hellenistic group and the Hebraic group. Both, both are Jews. Both groups are widows. But the thing that makes them distinct from one another is the language they speak or the background from which they come. Hellenistic means they are speaking Greek. Hebraic means they're going to speak Hebrew or the more common, Aramaic. So there is a linguistic barrier between the groups. And obviously they they are widows. The church has been serving them. Uh, Widows would have been among the most destitute in the first century uh, and just anywhere in history, you look back, uh, the quintessential uh, marginalized and poor are orphans and widows. Repeatedly throughout scripture, we see that God is the fatherless to the fatherless and he serves as a husband to the widow. He, He cares for the poor and for the marginalized. And so as an expression of God's care for those people groups, Judaism, in Judaism, they would, they would care. They would have great benevolence ministries. And now in the early church, they, they are meeting the needs of these poor widows, many of whom probably came into Jerusalem, heard the gospel, and then just stayed there. Now, they don't have a whole lot. Now what the daily distribution is, we don't really know. I don't think it was money. I think it was most likely food because it had to be every day. One would think you could pass checks out like once a week or something. Um, But but perhaps, but whatever it is, money or food, they're being neglected, I think is the better way to translate the word in verse 1. They're being neglected in this distribution. They're not getting what they should, the Hellenistic Jews, that is, the Greek-speaking Jews that are widows. The the Hebraic widows, well, they're getting what they need. So we can see why that might be a problem. Again, the church is, is right on and caring for widows, right? James tells us in verse 27 of chapter one of his book, pure and undefiled religion before God the Father is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained from the world. And so the church has the right idea. They want to be serving widows, but the application isn't working out all that great because we've got one group being Neglected. Uh, before we talk about that neglect, that, that neglection, I don't only that's a word, but, but that neglecting that's going on, I do want to encourage you in this. Uh, as a church, we have done well, I think, in caring for one another and caring for the widows among us and even widows that don't belong to us. Uh, I got a kind note this morning from Roberta Brown, who was recently widowed. And uh, needed some help, and, and she joined us last week, which is really awesome. But she sent this follow-up note that I'd like to read to you. She says, "Thank you. You have a special way of putting kindness into words and caring into action. That is truly a gift, and you are deeply appreciated. Again, thank you so very much. That's awesome. We, as a church, we want to be about caring for." Widows, we want to have the right theory and the right practice when it comes to meeting the needs of those in our community whenever we can. is an expression of what the gospel has done in us. Good deeds are not the gospel, but they are an expression of its truth. We do have a problem here in the early church. How, how did one group of widows end up neglected while the other group had their needs met? So the question here is, is why? And based on, uh, if you look down in chapter 5, when they decide a, a plan to meet this need, uh, they pick seven men, all of whom have Greek names and speak Greek. And so I think the primary problem here is again, the, the linguistic barrier between the two groups. So here's what I think is happening. Uh, the apostles, who would have been among those that are distributing the food, the apostles and uh, the rest of the church are passing out the food, but they're they're not aiming to be um, racial in their discrimination. Okay, I, I think they're just doing what's easy. You speak Hebrew, I speak Hebrew, you speak Aramaic, I speak Aramaic, whatever the language was. We're, we have these commonalities. And so just is easier to distribute in this way than it is to deal with somebody that doesn't speak the same language as me. So I don't. I don't think they were uh, racially motivated in their discrimination, but their discrimination turns out to be racial. You see, I think injustice often happens because of a failure to pay attention. Bob shuts his car door as he prepares to go about his morning commute. He holds his coffee in one hand steadily, trying not to spill it as he steals a sip. and pulls out onto the expressway. He fiddles with the radio and adjusts his mirrors. And then soon realizes that he's a little bit off the normal pace. He's going to be late to work. And the person in front of him is going way too slow. And so, in the blink of an eye, and without his blinker, he shifts into the left lane and into another vehicle, causing an accident. Bob didn't intend to cause an accident. But his negligence resulted in one. You see, we might not intend to cultivate injustice might not intend to wrong someone i don't think that the early church intended to overlook one group of widows but they did all the same they're responsible all the same ignorance is no excuse for neglect even like if you didn't intend to do it, you'd have the best intentions in the world, but, but you'd still be wrong. I mean, here's what I, I want, us, want us to get from this. As a church, we need to make sure we are continually checking our blind spots. We need to make sure that everyone who calls themselves a member of Rockfish Valley Baptist Church is cared for, taken care of, loved. 1 Corinthians 12 and 26-ish, I think it says, we need to have the same care for every member of the body of Christ. And that's true. There's no room for favoritism or favorites here. We must love each and every person the same. Love them as Jesus loves them. But know their needs. Otherwise, we undermine the gospel that we proclaim. We undermine our unity in Christ. We need to know one another. Be committed to meeting those needs. Now, I'm not in the greatest shape in the world. But, you know, I'll get after it every once in a while. Work out. And I I always joke that I have two rules. Rule number one, no day is leg day. Rule number two, C, rule number one. I kind of jokingly say that because I just hate to lift with my legs. I hate to run. People, those of you that like to run, uh, that's of the devil, I think. I just, I don't know. But some people actually like legitimately skip leg day every time. There is no such thing as leg day in their life. And what happens if you see them like work on their arms and their chest all the time, but what happens is over time when you look at them, they look messed up, man. Like like a pear flipped upside down with a couple like little twigs shoved in. Just, it doesn't look right, it's unhealthy. And you can tell, man, that guy, he skips leg day. <laughs> As a church, we want to have the same concern for the whole body. If I can put it maybe crudely, like we can't skip leg day, okay? We have to be committed to one another to strengthening one another, to building one another up, serving one another. But we need to be in tune enough to not overlook someone because they're quiet or because they sit in the back or because for you know, some reason they couldn't be here regularly. We need to make sure that we are committed to them. Look, if you're, if you're here and you are a member of our church or you've been around and we, we have neglected you or overlooked you, or you felt unimportant. I'm sorry. We we are sorry. That's not our aim. We ask your forgiveness. We we may fail in expressing Jesus' love to you, but I want you to know he, he doesn't. He would never overlook you. He was forsaken on the cross so that you would never, ever be forgotten. He loves you. And he he has brought you into a church to be part of his bride. And so I I want to comfort you with that, that Jesus loves you. And I also, I want to encourage you to love the church, love the bride of Christ, even when she acts ugly for the sake of her husband. Indeed, there is injustice in the early church. And it's a problem that needs solved. And so this complaint eventually makes its way up to the 12 apostles. And it's a legitimate complaint. We're not told how it arose or whatever. I like to think that they went directly to the apostles versus gossiping. Um, But, you know, if they were gossiping, like what's it, loose lips sink ships. And uh, loose lips and gossip can start a fire not not a positive fire, but like a negative one that burns down the house of God. But we're gonna give them the benefit of the doubt and say that they, they came with this legitimate complaint and they brought it before the church. And this is what we read in verse two. The twelve summoned the whole company of disciples and said, It would not be right for us to give up preaching and the word of God to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters. Select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and wisdom, who we can appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. This is not the response that I expect. I don't know about you, but I expect them immediately to kind of drop everything, go, this is a problem, we're going to deal with it, we're going to nip this thing in the bud, make things right, right away. But that's not what the apostles say. They say, no, there's a priority in our lives. We have to give ourselves to the word and to prayer. Like, just right away, I I recognize, like, these guys understand the difference between the urgent and the important. And I think knowing your priorities will keep the urgent from becoming a tyrant in your life. Knowing your priorities will help you walk faithfully with god they know that they've been called and commissioned to preach the word of god to herald the gospel and so that's what they are committed to and there's a whole bunch of play on words in the text like so in verse one overlooked could rightly be translated neglected and then there in verse two it says it would not be right for us to give up preaching uh, give up could be also translated neglected and so what they're doing is uh, the it, one neglect doesn't justify another neglect Right? If, we, if we have to take care of all these widows that are being neglected, then we will neglect the service of the word. Uh, also, the word service is all over the place here. And so they actually say, uh, it's not right for us to give up serving, is the way it could be translated, the preaching in the word to serve tables. And so they're saying, we have a, a different service that needs to be the primary area of our ministry. It's not, it's not that they don't like widows. I don't, I don't think the apostles, I mean, they were already serving widows, but I don't think they were, like, sitting around going, ah, oh, these widows, they are the bane of my existence. Let's, I know, we'll neglect some, and then we'll just farm out these responsibilities to other people. That's a great idea. Gosh, can't stand them. Like that, they're not doing that. They love widows. They're serving them. But they realized that continuing to try to meet this need on their own would take them away from their primary call would cause them to be disobedient to Jesus' commission for them to be bearing witness. So why why do preaching and the word have priority And again, this is is the great commission from uh, Matthew 28. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. They are to make disciples. They are to teach. And the way they do that is by committing themselves to proclaiming the word, proclaiming the gospel, proclaiming Jesus and prayer. Paul tells us that this is what's of first importance in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, I want to make clear for you, brothers and sisters, the gospel I preached to you, which you received, on which you have taken your stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold to the message I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I passed on to you as most important What I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. The gospel is of first importance because it is only in hearing the gospel that we can come alive to God. You recognize that? Like, like Romans 10 17 tells us, faith comes by hearing and hearing the message of Christ. And so it, it, it's, it's uh, with Ezekiel in the valley of dry bones. Like, looks, God shows him this valley and it's just a bunch of dead bones. And he says to the prophet, Can these bones have life? And Ezekiel's basically like, If you say they can. And then God's like, Well, preach to the bones. And Ezekiel preaches to the bones and they all take on flesh and come to life. This is a picture of us. We are dead in our sin, separated from God, following our hearts and in rebellion against his commands. We've set ourselves up as kings and queens and we want to rule our own reality, create our own truth even. And then all of a sudden, the spirit moves in us. Someone preaches the gospel to us. We come to life. And sometimes it's, it's like turning a light switch on and all of a sudden, I love Jesus right away. Other times it's like a, a dimmer switch where the light just comes on really slow over a long period of time and you look back and go, how did I become a Christian? Like, I thought these people were, were crazy. Like They believe a dude rose from the dead, he's coming back on a, the back of a horse with a sword in his mouth. What? This is what God does. He does it through the preaching of His Word. He brings people to life because His Word is truth. And the truth is what sets us free. Free from sin. It's God's Word that causes us to be adopted into His family. It's His Word that calls us to repentance, that calls us to follow Jesus. And that's why the apostles are committed to his word. And that's why I and us as a church, that's why we are committed to his word. Like if the apostles needed to be devoted to the word of God and prayer, like how much more is that true of me? Like so I don't know if y'all know that's what you pay me to do. Just so we're clear, (laughs) is to devote myself to the word of God and prayer. And let me tell you, there are are times where everything in the world seems more important than preaching and praying, but nothing is. I'm I'm so thankful uh, to be in a church where, where we understand that this is our priority and that you free me to give myself to these things. I hear so many stories of of pastors and churches where uh, the congregation uh, desires that they do everything and it comes at the expense of the word of God and prayer. It's not only true of me that I should be devoted to the word of God and prayer, but I think it's also true of you. I think God's people love God's word. and God's people love God. So they're they're devoted to these things. And I think it's a little difficult sometimes. It's hard to get started reading your Bible regularly. It's hard to pray regularly. So I'm going to try to give you some quick tips here. Uh, Time, place, plan. Bible reading 101, okay? Take 10, 15 minutes and say, I'm going to read my Bible. You can get a plan for this. Uh, You can do what some people do, a chapter in the Old Testament, chapter in the New Testament, chapter in the Psalms. Other people go, I'm just going to go one book at a time because that's too much to remember, and I'll just do two or three chapters there. But come up with a plan and follow it. The other thing is a place, a place where you normally and regularly read. And obviously the first thing is saying, I'm going to have time to do this, morning, evening, lunch break, you know, whenever. The point is, is that you do it. You spend time with God in his word. God has spoken to us in his word, and we respond to him in prayer. And so prayer, I actually think, is a little bit harder, right? It's one of those things where you, you finally get all the distractions of technology away from you, You finally get you know, some peace and a moment to pray, and you, you, know, you like sit down, and all right, I'm going to pray. And then you go, now what do I do? Like How, how do I pray? Prayer is one of those things that uh, we never want to do, but then we're always glad we did. It's, it's really the oxygen of the Christian life. And when I go a long time without, without really praying to God, I almost feel like if you've ever gone underwater and seen how long you can hold your breath, you're like, and then when you come to the service and you breathe like, like, and you just feel so much better, and I always go, why? Why didn't I do this sooner? Sometimes we don't want to pray because we're like, I'm not, just not very good at it. Let's, let me tell you, nobody is. Like, do you think? Do you think that, that like God is up in heaven and then someone prays and He goes, Wow, that's impressive. Impressive prayer life. No, he just he's looking for connection, communication. This is why. We pray, we pray because everything depends on Jesus. We need his strength and we need his comfort, we need his power. And so we give ourselves to prayer. The question though is, is how? How can we, some practical ways. Uh, what's most helpful to me is praying scripture back to God. And just plainly, oftentimes it's, God, I have no idea what you were doing in this particular text. Don't I have any idea teach it to me, uh, help me to find other resource, figure it out. Or, thank you for this text. Maybe the Psalms are great because those guys are really emotional and I can be emotional sometimes. And so if something's going really well, I'll read through one of those and then just, you know, pray it back to them. Yeah, ascribe to the Lord. Bravo, God. The voice of the Lord, is, it gives us strength. It flashes. like God, you're awesome. Or if, you know, really sad, like there are really sad Psalms. Or uh, what's, uh, is it Psalm 88 that ends, darkness is my only friend? I think it's that one. Really, God, I'm just so sad right now. It feels as if darkness is my only friend. Pray the scripture back to God. Another pointer is just to be grateful for what God has given you. If you need an example, you can come to my house for dinner just any night, just come on over and you can watch my kids pray before a meal. They're grateful for everything during that time. I'm serious. It's like, and God, thank you for the table and for the chairs and for the sun and for the clouds and and the trees and the grass and my water cup and my milk cup and my plate. On and on and on and on. And I'm like, all right, enough. But it really is a good example of when we you get rolling about what God has given to you and you realize it's it's everything, really change you. Pray in thanks to God. Don't always don't always give him your grocery list. You know? Like, imagine what it was like if, if you only talked to your spouse when you needed things. Need this. See you later. I think that's how some of us treat God. Uh, God, I need this. Amen. God, it'd be great if you could do this. Amen. But no, he. There's a dynamic relationship. This is a conversation. He speaks to us in his word. We speak back to him in prayer. We are connecting with the God who sustains us. Don't treat him like an app on your phone. Communicate. Just, just do it. And if you need help, like uh, you know, I like to read through. There's a little, a little black book on my desk. No phone numbers in there. Just, it's just uh, prayers. It's called the Valley of Vision. And man, those are written in some semi-archaic English, but man, they're good. By Puritans, Valley of Vision. Just pray those written prayers. Or grab a hymnal, you know? And pray through, you know, what did we sing? Because he lives this morning. Pray through hymns. God, I am thank you. thank you that Jesus is living. He's a real and risen Savior. And because he lives, I can face tomorrow. I praise you. Now, the last line of that song has always bothered me. It says, uh, ask me how I know he lives. He lives within my heart. And it fits, it kind of rhymes, but I always want to go, ask me how I know he lives. Uh, I know he lives because it's a historical reality that was verified by the testimony of the apostles in the early church who actually witnessed him rising from the dead along with 500 other people who saw him. It just doesn't, that part doesn't fit as good into the song, right? It's, he's a reality. And we speak to him in prayer because he hears. He hears. Hears you. I fear that if we really were honest about how much we pray, we would be embarrassed. Prayerlessness is faithlessness. Prayerlessness is pridefulness. It's an announcement that you depend on you and not God. want to give ourselves to the word and to prayer. Also notice the apostles, by virtue of knowing their priorities, take part in the holy practice of what I call intentional negligence. It means that they know when to say no, and I think this is going to be really good for you. Figure out what God's equipped you to do, how he's equipped you to serve, and serve in those areas, but say no to other things. Say no to things. It's better for you. Better for the ministries that you are involved in. Okay? In the body of Christ, no one does everything, but everyone does something. Okay? No one does everything, but everyone does something. Just do something. Find someone to serve. Call someone, pray with them. Go out to lunch. Hey, I'm going to read through this book. Will you read through it with me? Uh, Commit to show up at church regularly. That encourages the body. Say, uh, you know, I'm going to take you meals. You just had a a baby. Or uh, you are down on your health. I'm going to visit you in the hospital. there, There are all kinds of things you can do to serve one another. Serve the body. Say no to things. That's what the apostles do here. Everybody does something and no one does everything, not even apostles. And so those are their priorities. We've seen the problem, we've seen their priorities, and now let's see their plan for solving this problem. We'll read verse, starting at verse 3 again. Brothers and sisters, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Spirit and wisdom, whom we can appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole company. So they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Procorius, I'm not great at these names, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a convert from Antioch. They had them stand before the apostles who prayed and laid hands on them. This just makes a whole lot of sense. Apostles go, we have to give ourselves to the word of God and prayer, and so we are going to appoint, we're going to have you, the congregation, appoint other men to meet this need. They pick seven Greek speakers because the widows that are being neglected are Greek widows that speak Greek. It just makes sense. They'll be able to communicate, deal with the issue. It pleases everyone. And so the apostles delegate that responsibility formally through the laying on of hands and prayer. So three, three things that I, I want to show you here is that we kind of have a correlation between the apostolic office and that of pastor elders, that of these men and deacons, and that of uh, just congregation to congregation, okay? Uh, and so what we see is that elders or pastors lead spiritually. They give themselves to the word of God and to prayer. We also see that deacons, the word diakonos, variations of it show up in this text. The office isn't officially named here, uh, but it's proto-deacons. I mean, these are deacons. If it walks like a duck, talks like a duck, quacks like a duck, it's a duck. Uh, These are deacons. And, And so what they do is they meet very specific physical needs. In this case, these seven men are raised up to meet the need of these overlooked widows. And then you have the congregation kind of there in the background, just making sure this all goes along, right? It pleases the congregation. They appoint them. They're, they're ruling in a way. And don't notice that there's a minor miracle here, right? When, they, when the apostles say, hey, select seven men from among yourselves and appoint them to be deacons to serve this need, nobody goes but that's not the way we've always done it. It's a miracle, right? I'm kidding. They, they are pleased, they're, they're moving along with this, these changes. And, and I've spent a lot of time talking about uh, elders and, and pastors in, in the past and that role in particular. Uh, and so if you, if you want that, I've linked to it in my manuscript online, you can go and click. If you don't know how to do that, I'll print out a copy for you. Uh, But I want to to spend some time here talking about deacons and what they do. Three things from the text that we see about deacons. They are appointed to specific tasks, they promote unity, and they support the ministry of the word. And so we we see that these seven men are appointed to the very specific task of meeting the needs of these overlooked, neglected widows. Uh, Today in contemporary churches, deacons are appointed to all sorts of things we come up with an endless list. Uh, I think we, we only have one deacon, so it's not really a long list for us, like, like Herschel and facilities. But elsewhere, uh, where they do lots of weddings, there's deacons of weddings, there's deacons of security, deacons of parking, deacons of uh, visitation, deacon of finance, deacon of hospitality, whatever physical need that you can think of that would take your pastors or elders away from the word and prayer, well, there's a, there's a deacon for that right like that's that's what they do they say hey this need has arisen you you're going to deacon that and then when it's done like you're done and you know this on this need is ongoing and so you're going to deacon that until forever and ever whatever and and that's how it works the specific needs that that they are appointed to secondly deacons work to promote unity the threat underneath the threat of neglecting one group of widows here is disunity And so by serving in this very specific way and making sure the goods are distributed equitably, the deacons promote unity. They should promote unity in a number of ways, one of which is modeling a posture of service that is befitting of any Christian, that considers the needs and the preferences of others ahead of their own. So that when someone looks at a deacon, they should say, This is what a church member looks like. Someone who serves the body, right? Somebody that serves the church so that that when when I go to church, I don't, don't go, this is where I listen to sermons and complain, but this is where I serve and love. Deacons are appointed to specific tasks. They promote unity, and it's all to the end of supporting the ministry of the word. Support in the ministry of the elders. What they do in large part is they meet these physical tasks so that elders can tend to spiritual tasks. I tell you, like, again, like there are times where one of the struggles of my job is like you almost never get to see any results from it. It's not like I did this today. I cut my grass yesterday because we're getting ready to leave for a little while, and I didn't want to like a jungle when I come back. But I always love when I get to, i like, I cut my grass. Y'all see that? See, it's clumped up and looks ugly because it was wet, but I cut it, you can see it. But ministry doesn't work that way a lot. They're, these are spiritual things. Like when, I, when you pray, you probably experience this too, there's always this little voice in the back of my head going, why don't you get something done? But the reality is that prayer is, is the work. It is the service. Like you are getting something done. You just can't see it. It's important. What deacons do is they support the ministry of the Word and prayer. In some ways, they, they help guard the time of pastors or elders. That doesn't mean that, that pastors or elders never get involved in these other things. Right? They're, they're serving widows here. They're serving in other ways at the beginning. But it does mean that's what, that's what I and other elders need to give themselves to first and foremost. That's That's the priority doesn't mean I'm never going to help Herschel cut the grass when Mike and Dale come up with excuse after excuse about why they can't be here. But it means usually on your your typical week, like I'm going to be in my office and listening to that low hum of mowers circle around the property, right? They're helping me give myself to the word and prayer. And so we see that deacons are appointed to specific tasks, they help promote unity, and they support the work of the ministry, all to the end of making Jesus look glorious. Verse 7, the result of these plans, the result of making the word the priority and ensuring that this injustice is made right is the increase of the word. Verse 7, so the word of God spread. The disciples in Jerusalem increased greatly in number and a large group of priests became obedient to the faith. God's Word does not fail. Threats rise up against the church and God's Word prevails. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the Word of the Lord stands forever. And God's Word stands forever because it's God who has spoken it. We obey our Bibles because these are the words that God has breathed out, Paul tells us. This word doesn't fail. The gospel is what ushers people from death to life. No gospel, no salvation. Faith comes by hearing. Hearing that Jesus Christ, God, came to earth as a man lived the life you should have lived, died the death you should have died, and rose from the dead in victory. So that when you put your faith in him, you can have full confidence that you will be made like him, that you will share in his victory. That every promise of God finds its yes in Christ. When you are united to Christ by faith, every spiritual blessing becomes yours. Get resurrection life right now which is a foretaste of the life to come. That's real hope. It's not this makes me feel better about life and so it's just something I use to kind of get through the day. This is a real hope that means like, I'm not worried about dying because God's going to raise this body up again and make it brand new. This is real hope. Gospel is rooted in reality. And we preach it, Because it's good news. Because by it, men and women can come into loving relationship with the living God. Don't ever get over the gospel. Like, we get so desensitized to hearing God loves you or Jesus loves you. Like, we have treated God like dirt. He loves us the same. Romans tells us, while we were enemies of God, Jesus died for us. You understand that? Image of yourself in rebellion, sword raised against God, angry fists. And God looks and He has mercy, and He loves you. And He says, "You're trying to kill me. Let me give my life for you so that you might live." It's incredible. Jesus has loved you and given himself for you. This is the word of the gospel. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word, for in it we get to know you more deeply. Pray that you would help all of us to, by the power of your spirit, love your word to the end of loving you and serving your body well. Help us to be a people that are caught up in a love affair with you, Get excited about what you are doing in the world and in our lives. Don't let us ever live any day the same. Change us more and more into the image of Christ in whom we have put our trust. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.